in terms of living in Mexico versus living in the United States, they didn't view this as an American thing or the Americans versus the Russians. They just saw themselves as the same. It was all just humans. He said, we didn't see any difference between Americans or Mexicans. It was just that some of us lived on one side of the Rio Grande and some of us lived on the other side. Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to episode 138 of the podcast that explores our place in time. This week's guest is space scientist Tanya Harrison. She joins us for an intense conversation, one I think befitting the grandiosity of the topic at hand about how looking back on the Apollo missions 50 years later, how this zenith of a moment for humankind, something that was a shared accomplishment felt by people all around the world, was kind of, as William Irwin Thompson might have put it, uh, the first crocus of spring before another deep snowfall, a glimmering intimation of what we are all <laughs> still waiting on, a human species unified by our common sense of place, our belonging in the cosmos. Tanya's new book with co-author Danny Bednar, For All Humankind, goes into a series of interviews and stories with people who were alive to witness the moon landing from outside of the United States. And it gives us a real clear indicator of the wonder and the majesty that awaits us if only we get our act together now. We also talk about her time working as a Martian geologist, piloting a Mars rover, and uh, her more recent work with Planet Labs, which is helping us understand and live better on this planet with space-based imaging. So this is a really broad, sweeping conversation exploring humankind's relationship to space from many angles, and I'm really glad to have her on the show. Before we begin, I would just like to remind those who missed the Future Fossils book club call on Jeff Vandermeer's Born that that recording is now up for Patreon supporters and that we will be scheduling the follow-up conversation on Vandermeer's not exactly a sequel for that book, Dead Astronauts, here soon. Uh, kind of a, an unfortunate tie-in there given this episode. But if you're interested in truly unique and moving science fiction and uh, bizarre weird stuff then Dead Astronauts is up your alley and you do not have to have read Born first to enjoy these conversations which by the way have just really been superb if you're interested in that kind of a dynamic and generative discourse then I hope you'll pop on over to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield and uh, sign up at at any level, and that'll get you in on these calls. And now's a great time to thank everyone who has been supporting the show through Patreon, including this week's three newest supporters, Ned Booth, Matt Henley, and Jenica Cruz. If you're a regular listener to the show, you've heard my spiel, you know that this is how I keep this program independent and ad-free. But it is perhaps even more importantly a way for me to continue giving my work away. 
a way to ensure that I'm not just sharecropping for Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey. Uh, which is not to talk trash on the Future Fossils Facebook group, one of the only reasons I continue to use that platform, uh, a true bastion of interesting news and cool people. Nor is it to dissuade you from finding me on Twitter, but just as it is that life likely did not start in the open ocean, but in a warm little geothermal pond off to one side where the chemicals could bake and layer in a concentrated environment without dissipating. I feel the same thing going on at Patreon. Of course, there are plenty of other ways to support the show. Subscribing, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, sharing it with your friends. Every one of these helps get this show into the ears of the people who can benefit and helps me make a case to potential primetime guests that this show is worth their time. And I appreciate every little bit of it, and so do the other listeners. But now let's turn our attention to grander things here is professional Martian, Tanya Harrison, space scientist, author, advocate for the potential of our species. Enjoy, and I'll be back with a superb conversation with author Alex Shikar in a couple weeks. Tanya Harrison, it's a pleasure to have you on Future Fossils. Thanks for having me. So you have just co-authored this this lovely book, For All Humankind, with Danny Bednar, the subtitled The Untold Stories of How the Moon Landing Inspired the World. So this is a really uh, beautiful sort of uh, reminder, <laughs> I think, to those of us who were not alive at the time, uh, what, a, what a global achievement this was and how it was received by the world beyond the United States. So with you today, I'd really like to discuss space as a common human project and, and the ways that we're, we've, we have and continue to get that right and wrong, if that works okay. for you. <laughs> yeah, sure. But before we get started, I, you know, and I know that you've said this in other interviews, but uh, I'd love for you to tell listeners a little bit how you how you ended up a space scientist and, you know, like what what got you involved in that and uh, where your career has taken you thus far prior to this book. I've been interested in space for almost as long as I can remember uh, growing up watching stuff like Star Trek. So pretty much from like the age of five, I loved space. But it wasn't until the Mars Pathfinder mission in 1997 that my interest really honed in on Mars specifically. And uh, the Pathfinder lander had the little tiny like shoebox-sized ro rover called Sojourner on board. And NASA released an animated GIF of images that the lander took of the rover driving onto the surface of Mars. And I just thought that that was the coolest thing I had ever seen. And I knew at that point I really wanted to work on Mars rovers. And so 
pretty much every life choice I made after that, that was age 11, was geared toward trying to figure out how I could work on missions like that. Um, I started out studying astronomy and physics in school, realized at some point I actually should have been a geologist if I wanted to study Mars. So I switched to geology in my master's program. After that, I ended up working for a company that builds cameras for Mars rovers and Mars orbiters. And so that was basically 10 years after having my goal of wanting to work on rovers. I was working on the Curiosity mission and the novelty never wore off like every single day. I was just so excited to be doing what I had dreamt of doing for so long. So I think a lot of people were really surprised that my first book was not about Mars. It was actually it will actually be about the moon. But I've also really been interested in kind of the human aspect of space exploration and looking at how we can involve the entire world. And I I don't like the very nationalistic view that sometimes space exploration tends to take in the dialogue that people have. And so that was sort of the motivation behind writing a book like this. Right on. Well, you know, before we get into the book, I think a little bit more about the work that you've done with Mars photography, because this is really, you know, really amazing stuff. It's It seems to me like so extraordinarily cool that you were so directly involved in the uh, the geological surveys of Mars as such an early career scientist. And And it would be cool to tell people a little bit more like specifically how you were involved in that. Sure. Uh, A lot of times when you're working in research for whether it's Earth or Mars or the moon, you're working with data that we're sending back from spacecraft that we have orbiting all of these places. But it's not something that you're necessarily involved in as a scientist. So I got to work on the mission operations side of things. And my job was essentially the first job I had was working on the targeting team for a camera called the Context Camera, or CTX, on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. And so my job was literally every day to take to figure out what we wanted to take pictures of on Mars. And then when those images would come back each day from the spacecraft, I would analyze them from kind of two standpoints. One would be a technical standpoint. Does the camera look like it's functioning properly? Uh, And then from a geologist standpoint, is there anything cool in this image that tells us something interesting about the history of Mars? Is it something that maybe we need to image again so we can get a 3D view of it or image again because the shadows are not quite right for what we might want to see? Or maybe there were some dust clouds in the way, so we want to shoot it again under better conditions. And it was really exciting to be that directly involved, like not just doing science with the data from these spacecraft, but actually commanding them, like picking what you were taking pictures of, telling the spacecraft what you wanted it to do. And that's not something that very many people get the opportunity to do. I think on on our team, we had three to four people at any given time while I was working there. On the rovers, there's a few more just because it's a lot more labor intensive to work on the rovers than it is with a with an orbiter in uh, like on a satellite um but yeah it it blew my mind every single day you never knew what you were going to see a lot of times you would get a piece back and it might be something where you're the first human in the entire history of our species to ever see 
this particular piece of Mars or this particular thing on Mars at the resolution that you were looking at. And that's a really powerful and humbling feeling. So, you know, talking about this reminds me of my, one of my favorite things about the work that I did uh, early on in my life as a paleontologist. And like you said, you know, being the first one in that case to like pull things out of the ground, the first human being to lay eyes on something. But there's something else in, in what, you know, your story here that I hadn't really considered until just now, which is that it's amazing as a civilian bystander to get these images of distant worlds, but it's a completely different thing to be the one pointing the camera and to be like in that feedback loop with the survey equipment. And I'm really curious, like how you feel that that experience is how it was different for you to be in a, in a relationship with the reconnaissance orbiter in, in that way, specifically, not just to be exposed to this stuff, but to be in a cybernetic loop with it. To give you a little context, I've been thinking a lot about the way that we extend ourselves through our, our technologies. And obviously, there's still a lot of talk and a lot of hope for continued crewed expeditions to other worlds. But it does seem like more and more of the emphasis over the last you know, several years has been on robotic expeditions and on telepresence through these, you know, wireless communications networks. And so, you know, like, what kind of thinking does this inspire to you? What kind of experience was that specifically to be to extended in that way through the equipment in a way that's not true for us passive observers? I, I think that's a really great question. I... I didn't feel so much of an emotional attachment to the orbiter, but I did feel really strong emotional attachment to the rovers. And I don't know if that's because it's easier to anthropomorphize the rovers because, you know, they have eyes and arms and you can kind of picture them as this robotic emissary on the surface that's functioning as an extension of you. And you're asking it to do the things that you wish you could do if you were there. Um, and it gives you not only a really intimate relationship with that particular robot, but also with Mars and the pieces that you're looking at. So I remember, for example, when a lot of the news stories were coming out when the Opportunity rover uh, died a little over a year ago now. I guess it's been about a year and a half now. Um, but we called the mission over about a year ago. A lot of people on social media seemed really surprised that uh, all of the people working on the mission were so sad that it was over. And they said, oh, I wouldn't have expected scientists to be so emotional. But you work on these missions every single day. Your your entire schedule is dictated by, uh, in some cases, what time it is on Mars. When you're working on the missions at the very beginning, you're operating on Mars time. And so you might start going to work at 9 a.m., and as the mission progresses, since a day on Mars is about 40 minutes longer than a day on Earth, as time goes by, you're suddenly going to work at two in the morning. And <laughs> so you're, you're like operating. I imagine it's what it's like to have a small child. <laughs> like you're operating on the rover schedule, not on your own circadian clock anymore. <laughs> Verifiable. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so that gives you a really interesting experience like 
working with this robot as an extension of yourself. And uh, for a lot of us, we know we're never going to get the opportunity to go there personally. So it's the closest thing that we're ever going to get. And you, you do get very attached to them. In what you just said, there's another interesting point, which has been brought up on the show before. I think I had I had a science writer, Jessa Gamble, on way, way back, like episode 26. And, uh, you know, she thinks about time and, and sleep and uh, has written some some books on this. And we talked about this this difference here in, you know, what is it? The Martian day is like, what, 25 minutes longer than the Earth day? Uh, it's, it's almost 40 minutes longer. Okay. Yeah. So, so you have this just slight, slight difference. My personal experiences of this coming up in uh, the Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars trilogy, where they talk about how that, that changes the human schedule for people on Mars. And surely you've given, you know, thought to what it's going to be like for us to become an interplanetary species. You know, like when we had the you know, like the time zones established as a way of coordinating rail schedules across a continental scale. And, you know, what what's going to have to change for us to live on worlds that that turn at different speeds and like the way that this is going to affect the circadian rhythm, the way that this is going to affect our economic dealings. I'm curious. Yeah, I don't know. This, again, is sort of an abstract question that's not concretely related to your work as as a planetary geologist but I'm, I'm curious how you imagine this proceeding in the future when it's not just a team of people working on a rover mission but it, when it's it's become a democratized concern you know how that's going to change the experience of, of humans well th- this is something i've thought about a lot actually and one of the biggest things i think is going to affect us as we become multi-planetary is the fact that at some point when you've moved beyond earth you lose the ability to have real-time communication with anybody other than the people that you are with when you're talking to people on the moon there's a slight time delay but it's enough that you can still carry on a conversation like if you've ever heard any of the audio transcripts from the apollo missions for example they're still talking to mission control in houston and mission control can talk to the astronauts but when you're on Mars, depending on where Mars and Earth are relative to each other around the sun, your round trip light time delay for a signal can be anywhere between four and 40 minutes. And so you're not going to be able to carry on a real time conversation to talk to your family back home, to have maybe some of these business dealings like you're talking about for economy. And so you're going to have to figure out functioning as sort of this uh, autonomous system that has to also figure out how to integrate with the other functioning system here on Earth. And I'm not sure we fully understand how that's going to play out in terms of business, in terms of psychology. We have all these analog missions here on Earth where we try to simulate things like living in confined spaces with other people, doing repetitive tasks that are the type of things that you would do on Mars. But there's some things that we can't really accurately simulate until we do it. You have people that are working with this time delay in these, you know, maybe two week or month long stints where people are pretending that they're on Mars, but they're really you know, on the top of a volcano in Hawaii or in the desert in Utah. But I think even in that simulation, somewhere in the back of your head, you know, I'm still on earth. 
if something goes wrong, like if there's an emergency, I can still call for help in real time. Someone can come and rescue me in an ambulance or a helicopter. Like you have that security blanket somewhere inside of you. When that's gone and you realize that literally the only people that you can have a conversation with, a real conversation with, are the 5, 10, 50 other people on your spacecraft or in your base on Mars, how is that actually going to affect us? I don't think we know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so to ungracefully pivot into (laughs) your, your book... You know, one of the things that you set out to do very early in the preface of this book is to establish that the, and I think maybe there is a way to segue this, you know, because it, it really does, you know, like you said, the idea of becoming a multiplanetary means that suddenly, even if you're in different time zones, you're within communication range of other people on earth in a way that you're not with people on Mars or out in hypothetical asteroid belt projects or whatever. And so there's a sense in which to become multiplanetary means to establish a kind of global solidarity that currently we don't clearly see due to our immersion in international politics and and sort of tribal stuff. So, you know, one of the things that you, you talk about in this preface is to remind the reader that the Apollo missions are portrayed within the United States as an American achievement, but that they were really an international project that required international collaboration and was celebrated internationally. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that just to like help us set the record straight. Yeah. So that's, that's really why I set out to write this book because of the patriotic lens that the Apollo mission in particular, when we talk about space exploration, always gets. Like, America landed on the moon. We got there first. We beat the Russians. But it really did have this global effort behind it in terms of everything from components, uh, the struts on the lander, for example, the Eagle lander that brought Neil and Buzz to the surface were built by a Canadian company. You had folks that had come over to the U.S. from places like Germany and England that worked as engineers on missions like this, Um, people that were working at ground stations, uh, basically communications networks uh, around the world in Mexico, uh, Australia, Guyana, I think is another one of them. I forget how many. It's... uh, there's there's places all around the world that are actually receiving the signals from the astronauts and relaying them back to the U.S. in places like Mission Control. So you had all these people contributing to this humongous moment in human history. And I think a lot of that tends to get erased when we talk about it. I mean, other than, of course, you know, like, uh, you know, Werner von Braun there's always right. that. I mean, I hate to even go there, but there's a certain subset of the population that's very quick to remind us that we that we sort of requisitioned former Nazi rocket scientists to help us work on this stuff and that it's not it's not so crisply a victory of American virtue. <laughs> but that's like Exactly. That's sort of the the darker side of the history of the beginning of NASA and our space program. Let's see. I think it's episode 64 or something. I had I had Barry Vacker on the show. 
And, you know, he's written a couple books about what he sees as the failures of science fiction in the last several decades. Like, you are obviously far from alone in citing Star Trek as a source of inspiration for your your fascination with space and, and the sort of the promise of, of the human exploration of space. And like Barry, you know, his stance is a sort of a critique that we have lost sight of this over the last few decades that our creators are not putting forward a vision under which humankind can gather and marshal itself in this way. And I'm curious what your reflections are on the way that the tone of, of science fiction and, and space fantasy and the way that we think and we talk about these things has changed over the course of your life. Um, and you know, for better or worse, that's an interesting question. I think a lot of it probably changed as our world sort of naturally changed. You had a very optimistic outlook on the future in a lot of cases as the space program was starting and as we were having all these initial accomplishments, you know, the first man in space, the first woman in space, the first people to land on the moon. And it kind of seemed like we could do anything. We were accomplishing all these things without, in the relative scheme of things, without a ton of things going wrong. And then you kind of hit a point where there was not a lot of political support anymore. Public support for things like Apollo were waning because the, because of the cost. And so people started looking at things more critically. And then sort of in society, we started focusing on other things like the environmental movement and other problems that we were having here on earth. And I think people started to look at the future with a more skeptical lens in terms of what we could do and, and what the possibilities were. And I, I think that's reflected a lot in more recent science fiction television shows, a lot of things looking at sort of how we're going to destroy our own planet how artificial intelligence and robots are going to kill all of us. This very negative outlook compared to something like Star Trek, where the idea was, oh, we're all going to come together as a species for the sake of exploration and the betterment of humankind to work on these things together. And yeah, I don't know how, what needs to happen to kind of get that positive outlook back because we've had sort of a lot of negativity. I think maybe some of that might come from things like, like NASA kind of having a, a string of not so great experiences in terms of things like the Challenger accident, the loss of Mars Observer, Mars Climate Orbiter, and Mars Polar Lander as you moved through the 80s into the 90s. And then you hit a period of time where the narrative kind of changed from, oh, you know, NASA can do anything to NASA is spending lots of money. Everything is going way over budget, way over timelines. Mm -hmm. And so instead of being interpreted as like this groundbreaking, amazing thing, it just turned into another government pork barrel kind of project. And so I, I don't think people view space exploration the same way as they used to. I think that was a very rambly answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. We're that's what we do here. Um, 
There's another angle to this, which I, I haven't heard you speak on, but I imagine that you have given the density of your schedule, um, which is that probably because, like you said, of the sort of pork barrel embroilments of publicly funded space programs, things have shifted into, you know, like SpaceX and Blue Horizons and these other privatized space organizations, you know, Virgin Galactic, that are sometimes working with governments and sometimes kind of, you know, pursuing their own private initiatives. And so this is getting really sticky. Like I, I had um, Divya Prasad, who's uh, another, you know, another planet scientist who has written some really interesting uh, articles on uh, social justice and space exploration on the show last summer. One of the cautions that she was urging was about, it's one thing if we send up, you know, daring heroic test pilots you know, if the astronauts are, are like civil servants. And it's another thing when we start talking about like moving large quantities of people, people in families to another world. And, you know, it's, it's, it seems to me like as, as things have gotten more and more uh, imminent in a way, you know, as, as like we start seeing more uh, articles where Elon Musk is talking about giving people jobs on Mars, which I would love to just put a pin in that and be like, what, you know, to hear what your thoughts are on that more broadly. But like, um, there's this sense that as, as it becomes less about cheering our heroes onto the finish line and more about the brick and mortar reality, the mundane facts of like, how are we going to actually do this? Like as, as, as a species, like how are we as civilization, as, as a culture uh, of people establishing themselves on another world that it, it takes on this whole new depth and difficulty because, you know, the, the law and regulatory questions are so complicated and so unresolved. And I mean, you you are much deeper in this conversation than I am, and you have a much clearer view of how these things are being discussed. But I'm, I'm curious, like, I don't know what you see in all of this. You know, are you are you concerned that it's sort of like an East India Tea Company situation, that people are selling their their lives away to, to go be a part of this? What does this bring up for you? A lot of these social concerns are definitely starting to come to the forefront of discussions uh, through groups like uh, Arizona State University's Interplanetary Initiative and the MIT Media Lab Space Enabled Group looking at, you know, the technology is almost the easy part compared to everything else that we're going to have to consider. What are we going to do when we have to think about issues of the commons when we're going into space? You know, like you mentioned, Elon Musk wants to give people jobs on Mars. Well, what is your economics incentive there? And if you have people living in a base where suddenly you basically won't have the ability to have unlimited personal freedom like we can have in a place like the United States, you know, generally speaking, obviously there's limits. But if you're in a place like a base on Mars, everybody is going to have to do their part all the time or you will all die. And that is not a situation that most people are used to being in especially if you're talking about untrained people, if you're sending families out there, how do you get people to understand the gravity of the situation and realize that they're going to have to 
live this very mundane life where you might have to do the same thing every single day. You're constantly contributing to the welfare of your entire base to make sure that everything is functioning, that your oxygen is working, that you have enough food, that you guys are going to be able to weather the next dust storm that comes by. It's it's a mentality that we're really not used to dealing with in 21st century Earth. So people are thinking about this, but I think it's another thing, sort of like the psychological impact of the communications issues that I mentioned before. I don't think it's something that we're going to accurately be able to understand or predict until we get out there. We can only do so much. And even if you try to set out things like laws and regulations before you get out there, if you have a bunch of people living on Mars that are completely out of real-time contact with Earth, and they just start figuring out on their own what they have to do to survive and make their society work, at what point do they realize that the rules of Earth don't or can't apply there, and that you have to rethink everything sort of on the fly as you're going? So I think it's going to get really complicated really quickly. (laughs) Agreed. Um, (laughs) So I have two sort of... um in the pocket questions for you make of this what you will but i'm really curious for for your your thoughts reflections if you have seen uh the film ad astra which i felt was like a really excellent way to bring some of these ideas into you know in a fictional and narrative way into the public consciousness you know this question of like you know what happens when we put subway on the moon you know are are we going to be fighting over mining resources. You know, I remember there was a panel discussion among members of the Lindisfarne Association back in the 1970s when astronaut Rusty Schweikert, you know, said that he actually urged caution. This is, you know, before any space stations had actually been built. And he was saying, you know, that the space station is problematic because of the intensity of investment in a project like this, and you were just saying a moment ago that when the scale of the operation is so small, when survival is so contingent on the regulated activities of everyone involved, then um, everything that you do in the in these spaces uh, takes on this like extraordinary importance, and. You know, like I, I really appreciated the way that in Ad Astra, I liked how that film pointed to the security concerns and the sort of, you know, the ways that an underground Mars colony would weigh on people, you know, that it would require special rooms to like remind them of Earth and to calm them down and that there would be all of this weird like need to know secrecy you know that even in a small community that that people would be sort of a microcosm of the international brinkmanship uh back home i don't know like how did did you feel that 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 was a fair film and and did you feel that these are that these are fair concerns how does this contrast with your totally infectious and delightful raw enthusiasm for the beauty of these spaces like how concerned are you that we're just gonna kind of carry our own crap out there into space and yeah there's a ramble to meet your ramble (laughs) 
I mean, we're definitely going to carry our own crap out there. But I think what's going to be interesting is once you start having, you know, generation one, generation two, folks that have never spent any time on Earth, are they going to care about things like these simulated environments to make people feel like they're back at home? If you've never experienced a blue sky or a running river or something like that, is it actually going to matter to you? Or are you just going to be steeped in your own culture of living in lava tubes underground where you don't have any windows and that's just what you're used to? And do you maybe want some aspect of sheltering your offspring from the thoughts and ideas of things on earth so that they don't get revolutionary ideas of things like, oh, hey, it'd be great to live in a place where I could go outside and do whatever I wanted and not, you know, have to go and run the oxygen generators every day. Um, So that's, I think, is where it's going to start to be really interesting. And it's going to be very unpredictable. What what's going to happen when we start having people that are completely disconnected from Earth in any way? And then you have shows like The Expanse that do a really good job of looking at and the books as well that do a good job of looking at once you have those generations, can they even come back to Earth at all because of the gravity and the health impact? Um, There's a really great scene where a group of Martians come to Earth and as soon as they step off their spacecraft, they just they're wearing sunglasses because the, the sun is a lot dimmer on Mars than it is on Earth and they're they're having trouble walking, they're throwing up, like there's going to be huge physical impacts. So it might be something where once we've become multiplanetary, you're not even necessarily human anymore in some regard because you can't come back to earth ever. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's definitely awkward. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) you know, it's, you know, and again, the way that this has evolved over the the course of our lives, you know, the way that I, I thought about this as as a child, the way that I think of it now, you know, you get into the details of like, you know, how how easily can we even conceive uh, a child on a planet with a different gravity than Earth gravity, you know, and our it's just yeah, it's very strange. But you know, I don't want to I don't want to pull too far <laughs> too far out here. Um, I do. I do want to return to your your book and to the process of of working on this book. You know, you've got these extraordinary, beautiful, hopeful, reminiscent stories from people all over the planet who were party to this 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 moment in in history. And it's not just like a human history thing. It's it's like an Earth history thing. You know right. that like organisms made it somehow like through their own device onto our our satellite what was it like for you to to hear these stories to to write this book what was memorable for you from this this process like what stood out for you did you find any of it i don't know difficult i mean the most difficult part was just finding interviewees to begin with because i i was really set on finding people who had strong memories of the event, who did not grow up in the United States. So they had to be old enough. They had to not be American. Uh, They either needed to speak English or I needed to have a translator. So there are actually a few interviews in the book that I did where um, the the person's child acted as the translator for the interview. Um, So the logistical part was the most difficult aspect. And then finding people that were not 
with the exception of like one person, I didn't want people that were necessarily involved in the space industry because that that's a very predictable story. You find somebody that works for NASA, they tell you they were inspired by Apollo, you know, kind of like my story about being inspired by Star Trek. People have heard that before. That's not very interesting. I wanted to find people with different backgrounds. So we have, you know, a school teacher from India and we have a Holocaust survivor from Lithuania. Um, I wanted to hear these other people's stories about how it impacted them and did this thing that maybe didn't have any impact on their career necessarily have some emotional impact on their life or their outlook on humanity and the future. And hearing a lot of their stories were, it it was a very emotional thing because a lot of people they got so happy and excited talking about everything they could remember. Um, lots of smiling, lots of laughter. And especially in the cases where we had children acting as the translator, a lot of the children actually thanked Danny and I for involving them in this process because they said, you know, we had never thought to ask our parents about this. And it was really great for them to share this bonding experience with their parent hearing this story. And we did most of these over Skype so we could see the people as we were talking to them and getting to see them interact with their kids and enjoying this moment together was was really powerful. And it was nice to see that we could sort of facilitate this moment between family members in in a few cases. Yeah, there's a there's a beautiful story later in the book. We were talking about uh, the uh, Matias from Mexico. Yes, that was probably one of my favorite interviews. Yeah, and how Mexico contributed rocket fuel to this. I, I, I don't know. This one in particular really uh, stuck with me because like you were saying, you know, like the, the, the people that were there, the children in the streets playing with the toy rockets. I don't know. There's not a question in this specifically, but this, <laughs> I'd love to hear you like uh, unfold this one and, and like give a little context to this particular story for people just to get a sense for why they should read this book and like the, 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 the thrill it conveys and, and the, the sense of solidarity. So, yeah, that, that, like I said, was probably my favorite. Oh, I don't know if we could say that. They're all really, they were all really fun, but I have really good memories of that particular interview. And that was one where uh, Matthias's son, Saul, acted as the translator because uh, he did his interview in Spanish. His story was basically, he was, a, as a child, a science fiction fan. He really got into watching everything as it was unfolding with the space race, but in terms of living in Mexico versus living in the United States, he specifically said that they didn't view this as an American thing or the Americans versus the Russians. They just saw themselves as the same. It was all just humans. There was a quote that he said that I can't remember. I don't think it, it made it into the story itself. It's It's been a little bit. But he said, we didn't see any difference between Americans or Mexicans. It was just that some of us lived on one side of the Rio Grande and some of us lived on the other side. And so they were really excited to just watch everything that was going on. And that was a really beautiful thing to hear, especially right now with all of the tension that we have going on between the U.S.-Mexican border and um, seeing a time when people were thinking about there not being any borders and we were all just human. And he went on inspired from this and, you know, he didn't end up working 
in a space field, but it was something that stuck with him for the rest of his life and ended up inspiring his son, who is now a pilot who works for uh, a Mexican airline. And his son is very interested in space. And so it was nice to see sort of the transfer of this enthusiasm from father to son going through time. I really like, in addition, you talk about using the stars for navigation and how he was on a Catholic pilgrimage using the stars for walking navigation. And there's something in that, you know, I think a lot of us now are, are sort of accustomed to the rhetoric, the uh, Stuart Brand slash Carl Sagan, you know, blue marble earth from space. You don't see the political boundaries kind of thing. But then there's this other thing that's like a, a deeper and sort of more mythic element, which is the, the, the yearning and the questing and the, the, the journey work itself and how I love how in this book you, you draw this link, you know, cause here in Santa Fe, you know, we're really close to uh, Chimayo, which is one of the, the major uh, Catholic pilgrimage sites in North America. And, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of people walk to this, this chapel every year. And, uh, there's something in the work itself that unites us as people that we are, that we are travelers, you know, that we, that we set our course by the stars and that we, you know, in the modern world, we, a lot of us have sort of lost sight of that. You know, we get like wrapped up in our screens and the like street level sort of urban cultural stuff. And we lose a sense for this, this deep strand that connects us through antiquity into the deep future in the voyage. So I, I don't know. This is just an invitation to hear you wax a little bit on that. You know, if you're, if you're up for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think we're so separated from that idea now and uh, I feel like there's a few different threads that I want to pick out of the things that you said. One of them was the, the blue marble idea, you know, Carl Sagan and, and stuff like that. We take space for granted now. I mean, we've had astronauts on the space station for like 20 years continuously. A lot of people that I run into don't even know that humans have never been to Mars. They think maybe we still have people on the moon now. Um, so it's probably really hard for people to think of a time when something like the iconic Apollo 8 Earthrise photo was not something that people could just Google and see at any time. Like that was something that was incredibly perspective changing. We had things like the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act and, and you know, maybe a little bit more recognition about how fragile the Earth actually was because we could see it hanging there by itself in the blackness of space. And then sort of like from the stars and a journey aspect, this is going to sound a little weird at first, but uh, Indulge us. <laughs> I, I remember at some point, I think I was a, maybe a teenager catching part of an episode of ancient aliens on television. And the argument that people were trying to make on the show was that, there must have been aliens because why else would people have all of this stuff inscribed in art or frescoes or literature about space if it wasn't because there were aliens? 
And my immediate thought was, these people have obviously, or most people have obviously never gone out and seen what the night sky looks like in a place where you don't have the city lights everywhere. That in itself is a religious experience, regardless of what your spiritual preference might be. And most people don't get to see that. They're very disconnected from what's around them. So when I heard Matias' story, for example, just the thought of being somewhere really dark, walking on this path that had so much history behind it, being guided by the direction of the Milky Way, was a really beautiful mental image. And I, I made sure to pass that on to our illustrator, um, Ray Brizendine. I, I said, you know, this is exactly what is coming to my mind when I hear his story. Like, is there a way you can capture this? And it makes me sad to think that so many people will never get the chance to see the enormity that is the night sky and kind of get the sense of perspective of ourselves within the universe and get that ability to kind of step back and realize that there's there's so much stuff out there that's bigger than us and bigger than the day-to-day grind and bullshit and you know we should just appreciate the beauty of the world and the universe and be happy and try to make the world better for everyone and just enjoy life you know indeed this seems like it it brings us to the you know you're working now in in dc <laughs> talk about a yeah. you know a place where i imagine you don't get really great clear skies over there do you not really <laughs> so you're working for planet federal and so this is this is about helping people understand space imaging right helping people appreciate and access and actually utilize stuff could you talk a little bit more about this because this seems really really key to the point that you just made about connecting people to this this bigger while we're being weird like a bigger self you are a context provider Right. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that work and, and how that sort of fits into your identity and your greater mission. So I guess as like a brief overview for people that aren't familiar. So we're part of a, a company called Planet Labs and Planet has over 150 satellites in orbit of the Earth right now. And we image the entire landmass of the Earth every single day at three meter resolution, which means that we can see what we call patterns of life on the ground, but we don't resolve, you know, individual people or individual cars. We're not trying to use this to track you from space or anything. It's quite the opposite. We really want to use this data to kind of visualize the state of our world and how it's changing over time. So like the motto of the company is see change, change the world. And again, when we are like, embedded in one spot on the planet at one point in time, it's kind of hard to step back and see the bigger picture. So when you have these snapshots of the earth every single day, you're watching this larger living, breathing entity and how it all interplays with each other. You're watching seasonal changes. You're watching how the lighting is changing over time, how crops are growing and dying, uh, forests that are burning, animals that are migrating across continents. You catch all of these 
really beautiful well not always beautiful there's some beautiful and some terrible things that you can see from space but you're watching the entire collective of everything that is happening on our planet which is essentially other than the few robots we have in other places in the solar system the entire collective experience of everything that has ever happened to humanity and every other form of life here on earth and trying to capture that in a way with this imagery so that you can use that and try to take action. Is there a way that we can try to combat climate change? Is there a way that we can watch the atrocities of war and try to help save people's lives or try to, you know, prevent things from this, things like this from happening again? Like you said, I, I really liked your term context provider. You're stepping back and looking at the context of our planet and getting an idea of how all these systems are interconnected. And it's an idea that I fell in love with as soon as I heard about Planet a few years ago. And a lot of people were really surprised. Like I have been so obsessed with Mars for so long and it has been literally my, my whole life. I've poured all of my love and energy into Mars. There was a lot of surprise when I transitioned to working now for an Earth observing company. And a lot of people asked, why? I said, well, I, I'm very passionate about the idea of trying to get people to understand their context in the solar system and humanity's context in the universe. And even though this is just capturing a snapshot of our one planet, my hope is that we can use that to sort of change our perspective. And I truly believe that we can, if you can get this data in the hands of the right people to do the right research and the right visualizations and getting people to look at where they live and what is affecting them and people that they love and things that might be impacting their life. So I, I'm really passionate about getting the chance to work with this data and see how things are going to evolve over time when people actually get to start looking at it in earnest. So to go to planet.com and actually uh, appreciate these uh, images. The the first thing that comes up for me is that obviously Mars and Earth are markedly different planets, um, <laughs> but there is something about the orbital view. You know whether you are as as you've discussed. I'll link to the other interviews that you've done that you sent me in the show notes. Like you know you you had a good one uh, discussing the gullies of Mars and. Mars's living landscape, it's still changing, it's still evolving, even today. Mm -hmm. But then like, you know, to, to take that same sort of stance and to point the camera back down at Earth, do you, how do you feel that, like to start with Mars, and then to turn around and look back at your own life world in that way? Has that changed your relationship to your context? Because I constantly find myself sliding into this sort of alien anthropologist thing, you know, like to see our world as as though from somewhere else, you know, and and to be a professional Martian, you know, it's like you're studying these people now. I don't know. How is that for you? I think it definitely gives you a, a different lens on things. You know, I'm so used to looking at this planet where other than the tracks of the rovers, you don't see any impact of life as far as we know yet. Um, 
there are some dynamic, dynamic things happening, not nearly as dynamic as Earth. It's very monotonous in terms of color and sometimes in the landscape. And then you come back and you look at Earth, and I think you really appreciate how uniquely beautiful it is, how complex it is. But I think the thing that strikes me the most when I look at satellite images of the Earth is just how much humans have impacted the landscape. Unless you're looking at somewhere incredibly remote, like the ice sheets of Greenland or far northern Siberia or something like that, it's very rare to take a picture of anywhere on Earth where you can't see some impact that humans have had in some way, whether it's agriculture or a road or I don't know, any kind of infrastructure, really. And it gives you an appreciation for the power that we have to affect our environment here, but also the extreme, the extreme responsibility that comes with our ability to do that. Because we can see the effects from orbit that some other species on Earth have, which is really cool to like watch, you know, migrations of wildebeests across Africa from orbit, for example. But we are very obviously in a unique position on our own planet. And we, we need to be a little bit more, not a little bit, we need to be much more cognizant of just how much we are able to impact it. I think especially when we look at the dialogue around things like climate change, a lot of people don't think that humans could possibly be doing anything that could impact the world on a global scale. You know, what could we do that could possibly affect the entire planet? And when you look at these satellite images of Earth, you you very clearly see that we are impacting the entire planet every single day. And that's another case where that perspective, I think, can really come in handy to help people realize just how much we impact the Earth by our sheer presence and the way we live our lives. Mm. Yeah, this it's hold on just a second. I'm I'm actually I'm like on the Planet Labs website now, just like looking at solar arrays and stuff. And I'm just normally I'm not like browsing while chatting, but it is really <laughs> shocking. I'm curious, you know, g- given your intimacy with this work, you know, both in uh the scientific exploration part of it, as well as the civil and commercial parts of it. And and then also, you know, we've touched on how it changes our understanding of ourselves. What do you see as the most inspiring or uh, infectiously hopeful projects that humankind is taking on right now in terms of space exploration, including the exploration from space of our own world. Hmm. Like what is lighting you up right now in terms of projects that, you know, maybe not even, they may just be like on the horizon. They may be a napkin calculation, but you know, you make a good point in this book that Apollo 11 set the bar pretty damn high. Uh, (laughs) And what do you see us uh, pole vaulting over? on the next one? I mean, I'm going to get sad before I get happy in this answer. I think one of the things that came out of the discussions with people during the interviews for this book was that while I was left with this really wonderful sense of, wow, this was a thing that brought so many people 
together toward this singular vision of how humanity could be better and work together, I also had this really heartbreaking sensation that I don't know if our society today is one where we could ever recreate that feeling again, because everything is so ephemeral. Our attention span is so short. There's too many things going on at the same time. And so it left me wondering if we could have the next Apollo moment, to, to call it that, what would it be? And is it possible to have that? But on a more positive note, kind of shifting a little bit, like in terms of space exploration, there's definitely stuff I'm excited about. I don't think it will give humanity the Apollo effect in terms of having, you know, half the world's population paying to a sing paying attention to a single thing in time. But I'm really looking forward to exploring stuff other than Mars. So one of the big drivers for exploring the solar system, obviously, is the search for life beyond Earth. And we've been looking for life on Mars ever since the Viking missions, I guess technically since the Mariner missions, and we haven't found any evidence for it so far. We know that Mars was habitable, but we don't have evidence that it was ever actually inhabited. And you know, we're sending another rover to Mars this year to hopefully tackle that question more. We'll see what it comes back with. But in the time since we started exploring Mars to look for life, we've made a lot of discoveries in terms of the icy satellites of the outer solar system. So places like Europa, which is one of the moons of Jupiter, and Enceladus, one of the moons of Saturn, where we know that there are geysers of water shooting out of these places, and there are potentially warm, gigantic oceans underneath a layer of ice out there. And we have really good analogs for those here on Earth in places like Antarctica, where we've drilled through kilometers of ice and get to these ponds of water that haven't seen sunlight in tens of thousands or maybe even hundreds of thousands of years and stuff still lives in those. And so I'm excited to start exploring some of these places in more detail. So there's a plan uh, in the 2020s to launch a mission to Europa called the Europa Clipper, where we're going to try to get a closer look at that moon and its internal ocean. Unfortunately, we don't have a way to access that ocean yet because it's under maybe 25 to 50 kilometers of ice. And we don't know how to drill through that much ice on a place hundreds of millions of miles away from here. But I I'm really excited to see what that mission returns. I'm also really excited this might sound a little cheesy, but I'm excited for <laughs> this, <laughs> the space race closer to home in terms of launching the first tourists into space. I'm not excited from the standpoint of like, I, I want to be one of those tourists. I actually really hate flying. So I don't, I don't know if I'll ever be one of the people that goes to space. Maybe, uh, maybe if I, whoa, 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 whoa. hold on, <laughs> slow down. <laughs> I, I hate to interrupt you in the 11th hour here but like this is a thing like right right like the the visceral dimension of it like you don't want to go up in a space plane or i mean in my like, heart i want to go into space definitely uh but in my head my claustrophobia says no <laughs> so i have to work to align those things a little better like maybe in time once i am I mean, I fly on airplanes all the time, but I really hate it. So maybe once I get over the hatred of flying, then I can like start to work toward 
maybe going into space on a Blue Origin flight or something like that. I did sit inside their space capsule and it felt very not claustrophobic. So that gives me some hope. All right, cool. Sorry. Yeah, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to uh, interrupt you there, but there is, yeah, that's just, it is, there is that paradoxical reminder <laughs> that, you know, we think about like the unlimited expanse and then like the, the reality of the space capsule, like living in these, these tiny things and being shot out at extraordinary speeds and, you know, your, your guts going into your head and stuff. I don't know. Yeah, seeing the size of things like the Mercury and the Gemini capsules that people, you know, first went into space in, uh, like, I get claustrophobic just looking at them. I can't imagine sitting in that and then going into orbit of the Earth for, you know, tens of hours to days at a time. Like, those those people were a whole other type of human. Like, I commend them for having the bravery to do that, not knowing what they were getting into whatsoever. So, life... You, do you suspect that life is going to be the uh, the the astrobiological quest is our Apollo moment for us? Like rather than just like focusing on a particular planetoid, you know, landing this thing on this thing. You know, you brought up ASU earlier. Uh, Sarah Amari Walker uh, just posted a talk about uh, can biospheres reproduce. And today, the day of recording this, January 26th, there's a documentary at Sundance now uh, debuting on Biosphere 2. Oh, cool. Uh, and, and the, you know, the work to, to really get a sense for what it takes to, to have an autonomous ecosystem and to maintain it. So, I mean, do you see that as our generation's moonshot? I think so. I, I, that sort of ties into the answer that I was, I was starting to give for the excitement part. I think space until now has been seen as sort of the realm of a very select few people that have you know, the right stuff, quote unquote. They're incredibly physically fit. They have passed all these mental exams. They have to be incredibly intelligent. So it's very disconnected from what people might think of as their day-to-day -day life. But once we get to a point where sort of regular people can go into space, and I, I use that term generously because for a while it's going to be people that are still quite wealthy, but taking away the idea of the right stuff and realizing that you could still physically probably handle the rigors of going into space, even if you're not a highly trained astronaut. The highly trained astronaut part is mostly to be able to live in a confined tin can with five other people for months at a time and do your job. But like to physically go into space and experience microgravity for a few minutes on one of these suborbital or maybe eventually, you know, orbital flights, um, that's a whole different thing. And I think that that will start to change people's perspective on what it what space travel means and the idea of humans expanding beyond Earth. So I'm hoping maybe once we actually send the first humans to Mars, this is something that's new. It's something we haven't done before. I'm hoping it will get people more excited. But part of me is very pessimistic because, as I mentioned before, I get a lot of people when I give talks at places that don't realize that humans have never been to Mars. So, again, I, I think it's that taking space for granted. They just assume that we've already done this. And I think a lot of scientists... What the hell? I know. Like, it's, oh, it's so frustrating. It's bizarre. It tells me there's like some failure of science education or communication in the pipeline there somewhere. 
and you know, this isn't just a question from children. It's a question from adults. And that that's really heartbreaking. So we need to fix that. That's that's a problem. And I think that a lot of scientists have this and space enthusiasts have this idea that if we discover life off Earth, that's going to be a thing that brings us back together like that will unify unifies as a species that could be our next apollo moment and i think that that's potentially true if it is the star trek version of discovering life off earth where someone like vulcans come down we realize that there's life out there that's kind of like us and we can communicate with them and we realize we're not alone if we go to europa and collect a sample of the water shooting out of the geysers there and we discover microbial life that is hands down one of the most important discoveries that we will ever make in human history. But I'm not sure the general public will care that much because it's just bacteria or a virus or whatever it ends up happening to be. And that also breaks my heart to think about it in those terms. Like we could make the largest discovery in human history and it won't actually impact people's lives here on Earth all that much because they just won't care or they won't appreciate the significance of what has happened. And so I think even that, even if we found bacteria in these geysers, I still don't think it would have the same effect as Apollo. And so I, that's why I keep thinking, is there anything with the way that we live our lives in the 21st century, is there anything that can unite us in a way that Apollo did? Very pessimistically, I feel like the answer is no, unless, you know, maybe there's some external forcing thing like an asteroid that's going to hit the earth and we're all going to die unless we combine lots of government resources around the world to combat <laughs> it, you know, like pull, pull an Armageddon or something like that. Right. Um, yeah. But in general, I, I have this sort of pessimistic view of being able to unify people again in that way. And so, yeah, that was probably the most heartbreaking thing to come out of the book was to see that for this brief moment in history, we had the ability for so many people to have this unified vision and drive and optimism for the future. And then to have that all sort of crumble over the following years which is why we asked all of the people at the end of each interview, you know, what what do you see for the future? Like you saw this optimism, but then things have changed. And some people gave very optimistic answers and some people were not quite as optimistic. I don't want to spoil everything for anybody. But in general, you know, we, we also tried to keep the conversations very positive without biasing them because, you know. It wouldn't have been nearly as interesting if they're like, well, the whole world has gone to hell, so this was all not worth it in the end. <laughs> so I want to wrap this on a, a kind of a thought experiment that seems in line with your everything that you've said up to this point, which is, all right, you are the great-great-granddaughter, let's say, of Tanya Harrison, living on Mars born on Mars, maybe interplanetary travel has worked itself out. And it's, it's a, you know, it's like a, a, a transatlantic voyage now, or maybe it's, you know, maybe it's just, you know, you're a distinctly Martian creature and, you know, you think of Mars as your home world. What do you imagine would be the new horizon for that little girl? 
like what you know what do you think you know if if you were to sort of template transpose your enthusiasm for the cosmos you know into a life hundreds of years hence what melodic strain animates the curiosity and wonder of someone whose civilization has already achieved these things that to us still seem so precarious and imperiled and fraught. I think the goal would probably just be what's the next thing. So we, at that point we've proven to ourselves that we were able to establish a presence on Mars and hopefully not just survive, but also thrive. So now we've proven out that case. What's next? Can we, go out to the asteroids can we create a multi-generational starship to try to go to alpha centauri or some other planetary system that we've detected nearby because i don't think we're obviously not going to be happy just stopping at mars that's just the next stepping stone beyond the moon and the earth so we're going to want to keep going and figure out how far we can make it out there is there anything that you wish you knew were you to time capsule this and pitch a question into the future? Is there something you'd like to ask that distant proxy self? That's a deep question. <laughs> um, I think just how did it all turn out? How did we do? It makes me sad to think that I won't be around to see these bases on Mars and you know, really see humanity become multi-planetary. Maybe I'll get to see some people, a few people on the moon and Mars, but I, I want to know how it all turns out. So it'd be really interesting to go and ask, like, how did this all work? How did, how did it go? Mm. Well, Tanya, thank you so much for indulging my, my disjunct and wandering <laughs> questions. <laughs> I think it's perfect for my, my rambling, so it's great. <laughs> I'm so glad that we live at a time when there are people like you who can do jobs like the work that you do and that we stand on this wealth of inheritance that we do, that you and, and Danny Bednar lay out so clearly in For All Humankind. You know, in spite of all the complications we've discussed in this call, it's a really precious and amazing thing that we've got here. I, I, thank you so much for being on the show. Do you have anything else to say to folks? I will be sure to link to all of your stuff in the show notes, but if, if you want to point people in any particular direction or give any shout outs. Uh, I guess if you want to nerd out more about all things space, you can follow me on Twitter is at Tanya of Mars and my co-author is uh, at Danny Bednar. He talks a lot about space history and cats. So it's a good combination there. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thank you. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for listening. Future Fossils is one of many illuminating podcasts available on the MindPod network. I recommend you uh, trip on over there and check them all out. For more episodes, show notes, and extensive copious extras and head over to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Subscribe to the show anywhere you go for podcasts. And I'm always happy to hear from you. Future Fossils Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. 
and may your now be deep, wide, and wonderful. Until next time. Uh, daughter can-